So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Timothy Weaver, who's an associate professor of political science at SUNY Albany and the author of Blazing the Neoliberal Trail, Urban Political Development in the United States and the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, Timothy. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. So I would like to talk about an article you wrote for the Boston Review, actually just in April, um, called The False Promise of Opportunity, Opportunity Zones. And maybe the best place to start, the easiest place to start, is just if you could describe what are Opportunity Zones. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Opportunity Zones are a, a, a policy um, that was created during the Trump administration as part of the 2017 uh, tax cuts uh, bill that got passed uh, at the end of 2017. And the idea uh, is to use capital gains tax incentives to encourage investment in poor neighborhoods, um, which are defined as census tracts with certain levels of uh, poverty uh, and so on. And the way that it works is if you haven't, if you've got capital gains that you haven't paid any taxes on so far, you can put those capital gains into a qualified opportunity fund. And then um, uh, if you hold that investment for five years, you get to reduce your uh, capital gain by 10%. And if you hold it for seven years, you get to reduce it by 15%. Uh um and but the big one is that any profits that you make or new capital gains that you make from investments in opportunity zones if you hold those investments there for 10 years then you can avoid paying all capital gains that you realize from that new investment so it's a really big way uh, of trying to encourage investment by either reducing significantly or eliminating entirely capital gains taxes. And the you, you sort of say like the origins of, if we can trace back the origins of the Opportunity Zones, we, could, we they go back to um, Sean Parker, who, who was the guy who was responsible for Napster, right? Yes, that's very, that's uh, exactly right. Um, the idea uh, that he had, um, and this is, uh, described quite vividly by um, David Wessel's book, which is all about the process of uh, getting opportunity zone legislation passed. Um, Parker's idea was that um, pe- rich people like him had lots of uh, capital gains that were just sort of parked in various funds, not really doing anything. And what he thought uh, was that if we could find some way of passing some legislation to encourage investors to do something with their investment and channel it into poorer areas, that there would be a kind of a positive trickle-down effect. And so he was very much pushing the idea. He pushed it uh, and and helped to fund a a kind of a new think tank, which was designed uh, primarily to promote the idea and to develop specific policy proposals called the Economic Innovation Group, um, and lo and behold, uh, he was able to 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 kind of create support for this idea and then um, uh, deploy the kind of personnel required to 
craft it into a policy, to get it into legislation, and then finally to get it on the president's desk for his signature. Right. So, so clearly, Trump is a supporter of the of this initiative, but um, the Opportunity Zones have bipartisan support, right? I mean, so Jared Bernstein, who's an advisor, an economic advisor, so Biden and Cory Booker and Tim Scott. What's behind? I mean, this seems like one of the few places outside of spending on the military that Democrats and Republicans can come to some kind of consensus. Why do you think that both parties are so excited about this? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And you might think, well, why would the Democrats be for um, giving massive capital gains taxes uh, uh, away to wealthy investors? Um, and I think that there are kind of two kinds of answers to that question. I mean, the first is that most Democrats um, are uh, more or less comfortable with the idea of trickle-down economics. I think increasingly this is maybe coming out of fashion to some degree, um, but for the last certainly 40 years, the Democratic Party um, has been more or less down with the idea that um, relatively low rates of taxation on individuals and or businesses is a good idea. Um, and that um, market forces in general are good things. Um, and if anything, what we need to do is to make sure that people don't encounter barriers to markets and to capitalism. And so I think that that's one answer. That is to say, there are lots of Democrats who basically agree with what somebody like me would call the kind of neoliberal uh, uh, consensus, um, deregulation, markets, tax incentives, etc. I think the other answer is that um, there are uh, uh, some Democrats like Cory Booker um, who I think are, are aware of, of some of the shortcomings of this approach, but nevertheless are, are committed to trying to do whatever's possible um, to channel sort of tax incentive-led investment into the inner city um, and property-led investment into the inner city. The idea there being, the related idea, that really poor places and poor people need any kind of investment. And if the government's not going to do it directly, then we need to try and encourage the private sector to do it. And so I think that's why people like Booker and Bernstein uh, were on board. It's not that they're neoliberal sort of ideologues, but I think it is that they, it is the case that they thought that markets uh, and more investment led by market actors in poor places would be a good thing. Well, yeah, I mean, so maybe we can, that's a good place for me to, to ask you, well, what's wrong with private capital coming into under underinvested poor neighborhoods? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And um, uh, it all depends really what that private capital is going to do and who's going to benefit from the kind of investments that occur. And one of the problems with the Opportunity Zone legislation is that it doesn't put any guardrails or any guidelines um, uh, uh, con uh, concerning the kinds of things that people can invest in, except for one or two. So it does limit, for example, 
uh, it does say that you can't invest in casinos. You can't use Opportunity Zone funds for that. But beyond some of the so-called sin businesses, um, uh, it doesn't rule out investment in a luxury condo or a hotel or um, uh, even something like a a parking lot. Um, And so the problem in this case is that it's not at all clear how those kinds of investments actually benefit poor people in poor neighbourhoods. And uh, therefore, um, I think you have to be quite careful with the assumption that any investment is good investment. There may even be negative consequences of investing in poor neighbourhoods with the aim of pushing up property values, because it could mean that those neighbourhoods become unaffordable for people that live there. Rents will be pushed up. Um, Maybe shops that are affordable get replaced by fancier coffee shops or, you know, microbreweries or whatever it is. And while those things are good for people in certain social classes, they're not good for everybody. And indeed, for for some people, they might actually be harmful because they might leave them relatively worse off rather than better off. And that's one of my big concerns with the policy. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to go back to the origins again. You were you were talking about um, John Parker, the Napster guy. Yes. But also these ideas don't start with him. Right. And in your article, you talk about um, a, a British sir. I think his, his name is Paul, who yes. has this who has this model called the Freeport solution. So maybe you could talk a little about what that was. And this is the 1970s. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so kind of Parker is is the latest version, really, of um, a, a long-standing series of attempts to try and do more or less the same thing, to try and revive dilapidated areas of uh, uh, our inner cities. And as you noted, yeah, the person you're talking about there is the geographer and planner, um, Sir Peter Hall. Um, who uh, in the 70s, during a time when people on the right and the left were really kind of groping around for some sort of alternative to the problems of stagflation, low growth and inflation, high unemployment. And so he was trying to come up with some sort of radical idea to try and break out of, of what he saw as a pretty negative cycle. And his view, what, and he, you know, I interviewed him as part of my research uh, on this, and he was sort of saying, you know, I didn't necessarily think that my paper would be taken seriously when he originally wrote it, but he was trying to do what he called blue sky thinking. So he was sort of saying, well, what if we just got rid of all um, uh, taxation and regulation and just see what happens, thinking that this would approximate kind of what had happened in Hong Kong or, or Singapore. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of inspired by this sort of rapid growth, um, transformation, uh, uh, really under the circumstances where capital was kind of allowed to do its thing. And so the idea was, why not try what he called the Freeport solution? And this idea was also uh, sort of percolating through conservative circles and another sir, in this case, Jeffrey Howe, who became Margaret Thatcher's first Chancellor of the Exchequer, Finance Minister, had a similar idea. 
And so he actually introduced the idea under the name of enterprise zones in 1980 in the United Kingdom. And they did essentially what Parker kind of was, was looking to do and what opportunity zones do, which was to try and strip away for particular areas of inner cities, regulation and taxation, um, uh, and let kind of capital and capitalism rip in the hope that it would improve and revive urban areas. Yeah, so what happens in England? Do we get to see the implementation of these zones and, and do they in fact uh, turn around the neighborhoods? Yeah, so so the general uh, finding was that they didn't actually have much effect, um, but with one very important exception. And the big exception to this is London Docklands. And this was an area where um, the first enterprise zone was created. It's where Geoffrey Howe gave his speech announcing the policy idea. And that area really has been transformed. It was kind of abandoned, dilapidated docks in the late 70s um, because London's docks had moved down river out of London. Um, uh, to, to accommodate container ships and so on. Um, and so there was a great deal of, of um, uh, uh, dereliction. And since then, London Docklands has been radically transformed. And so it's now often heralded as the great example, the great success story. But as I point out in, in the article um, and elsewhere, the problem is that actually the cost of the new jobs that were created in Docklands was very, very high, thirty-five dollars to $45,000 per job in lost tax revenue. Um, and moreover, you would expect and hope, right, that in somewhere like Docklands, you could see trickle down really working well. So what you should see is not the, just the new skyscrapers, um, the new banks and financial services companies that are there. But you should see if the logic works the way that it's intended to work, people in general doing better um, off over time. But what you see is actually the place where Canary Wharf at the heart of London Docklands is, um, is actually very, very poor. Tower Hamlets is the main borough of London. Mm -hmm where it is. And, and in Tower Hamlets, it's actually ranked um, as the most deprived local authority in London out of mm. 33. Mm. It's the 24th most deprived uh, local authority in the whole of England. Um, and that's out of 326. So in other words, while it's true that you can see all sorts of economic development happening in somewhere like Docklands, what you don't, A, that was expensive, cost per job in tax revenue lost, and B, all the benefits of that have not trickled down to the local population at all. Um, and in fact, they live relatively in, in grinding uh, poverty and deprivation. And I, I saw in the article you were saying that there are few cases here in the United States, like when researchers have, have scoured the, the, the examples for, for you know, positive outcomes, they found a few, but by and large, it reproduces the same kind of results we saw in the UK. Is that right? Yes, yes. I don't want to um, dismiss some of the positive examples, um, but people, um, a number of scholars and others that have tried to study this topic 
have found that generally speaking, the, ex the, 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 the success stories are in fact the exceptions that prove the rule. And the general story is that opportunity zone investment has been channeled primarily towards real market rate, real estate, commercial and industrial real estate investment. Um, and this kind of investment, of course, doesn't benefit ordinary people in poor neighborhoods at all. And for the reasons I mentioned before, might actually have a negative effect. And so what we're seeing is that the kind of investments that are being encouraged tend not to be of benefit to the average person in, in these neighborhoods. But the people that are benefiting, of course, primarily are the people that hold capital gains and are avoiding paying capital gains tax on those gains. Um, so they are, they are doing very, very well out of this policy. Um, but beyond them, it's hard to see beyond a few cases which are in the minority um, how ordinary people um, in, in poor areas up and down the country are benefiting at all from this policy. So I'm wondering if there are any models that you would point us to that that work differently, that work better? Yeah, so I think there are kind of two prongs uh, of, or, or two alternatives when thinking about what to do about this problem. And there's a sort of the inside baseball version, which says, well, what we need to do is to make the program work better. And uh, Senator Ron Wyden has introduced a bill to this effect where you start saying, well, you can't use Opportunity Zone funds to invest in luxury real estate, for example, ruling those kinds of things out. Um, and in general, um, that's that's welcome. Um, but my big point, really, is that um, it's while it might be true that you could make this program less awful, um, uh, what I think we should do is to think about radical alternatives um, rather than trying to essentially put, put lipstick on the pig mm -hmm. opportunity zones. And so what are those alternatives? There are a whole range, um, but I think sort of conceptually, we need to have a, a shift. At the, the, enter, the enterprise zone, the opportunity zone kind of conceptual landscape is all based on this idea that what these areas really need is to enhance exchange value, the, the price of land. And that if you build that up, then, then positive things will necessarily follow. I think we should think about it in a different way. And instead of focusing on exchange value, we should be focusing on use value. That is to say, do things that improve neighborhoods for the purposes of people that just want to live there, and have happy and successful and fulfilling lives. So what does it mean to invest in use value? Well, it means investing in the kinds of things that people need and use on a daily basis. Public social infrastructure, parks, libraries, schools, transportation, um, uh, health clinics, um, all of those things that will, would make things much better in the short and medium term for people that actually live in those areas. I think, so that's, I think the first really 
important shift we need to make conceptually because it leads to a whole different set of policy alternatives. Well, can I just can I just jump in for a sec? But, yeah. But those things, and I'm, I mean this in a serious way, I mean, those things don't make money. So mm. does, does this mean that the investment has to come from from the state ultimately and, and from tax from taxes? Well, that's so that's the first part. Yes, it's absolutely the case that these areas need um, uh, direct investment, either, you know, coming from from cities or from states or from the federal government. Um, it's not possible to ha- live in a civilized society, I don't think, without direct investment in public goods. There's not much money to be made from a library or a public park. So we can't rely on the private sector to deliver those public goods. And nor I don't think would we want to try and do that. So in other words, for those sorts of things, yes, you do need direct public investment. Um, But I also think we need to go a good deal further than that, um, which is to say that what we want is not simply to engage in redistributionary sort of social welfareist spending, although I think that that is necessary and, and should be encouraged, but it's not sufficient to create vibrant neighbourhoods where, where investments are being made, where um, uh, uh, wealth is being generated. And so what can we do about that? I think that we can follow some alternative models. For example, those models which kind of fall under the rubric of community wealth building. And this is where um, rather than offering tax cuts to big uh, uh, institutional investors to invest in a neighbourhood, instead you, you start from the ground up. You say, well, what have we got already and, and, and how can we build out from what we already have? And that was an approach, for example, taken in, in the UK context by the city um, of Preston, also uh, the city of Cleveland, both of which, you know, places which were not exactly booming, um, but nevertheless had to think about, well, what can we do to try and make our economies vital, um, to try and uh, create prosperity um, without necessarily having to open ourselves up to um, capital, which could just as quickly leave as it as it arrives. And so both of these cities um, have tried to do different kinds of strategies whereby they use the kind of investment or the kind of funds that cities have at their disposal, let's say pension funds or contracting for services, which which all local authorities have to do. And rather than just um, um, uh, engaging the whichever private company um, offers the lowest bid, uh, they instead invest in collaborative, democratic, uh, uh, worker-run institutions like cooperatives, or investing via public banks rather than commercial banks, or setting up community land trusts and so on and so forth. And in this case, the wealth that is generated by by economic activity, rather than being siphoned off and paid off to in profits to investors, um, they'll be re- recirculated around the community um, to the benefit of the workers that produce the, the wealth to begin with. Wow. You know, I want to go back to your article where you talk about 
the Democratic congressman from New York, the, the great Democratic congressman from New York, Charles Rangel, who, oh, yes. who voted um, a few times, I guess, against these uh, opportunity or empowerment zones, but then finally came around and and supported them. And also, yeah. you know, Clinton and, and yes. Gore. And I'm wondering with with those models that you just presented, and we're going to have, we're going to put up a show soon about um, community trust, which are also so cool. But with those models that exist, why is it just that the politicians don't know about the models? Why does someone like Rangel go from rejecting, you know, what you talked about at the beginning is trickle down economic solutions to embracing them? Mm -hmm. What's what's happening here? Yeah, I mean, that's a big uh, question. And, and that's one of the uh, questions that I've been sort of long wrestling with in my in my own work. Um, and I and I think that the the first thing is that there is a, 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 a the role of ideology. I don't think can be dismissed here. Um, I think that over time, um, uh, and this applies to a whole range of of policies. For example, with respect to trade deficits, welfare. Um, that the Democratic Party, including people like Charles Rangel shifted away from anything that seemed like um, sort of New Deal liberalism um, and or great society liberalism um, and towards um, uh, uh, neoliberalism. They basically made peace with Reaganism and then tried to sort of put a democratic spin on it. And that was the empowerment zone idea, which Rangel ended up signing up for um uh, so that's a sort of ideological story but i think the other story really is that the democrats uh, a good proportion of the democratic party um is of course a party of business um uh, it's not a left party um there are some people in the party that um, are leftist but most aren't and so in a way it's not it shouldn't be all that surprising uh, to see people like Rangel move in, in that direction, um, like they did on crime, for example. They moved to the right on crime very heavily in the 90s. So I think probably it's important to, 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 to recognise that the Democratic Party is made up of a coalition of people, um, including many who are pretty pro-business. And so the idea of providing tax incentive to business to do things in poor neighbourhoods Sounds good to them, and 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 you know, there's kind of nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Their lights, um, and, and whereas the idea of, you know, worker cooperatives and 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 uh, uh, radical kind of uh, democratically owned organisations, um, I think can can alarm some people and think you know who maybe think that it's a bit crazy and a bit too left field for them. Yeah, I want to go back to talking about ideology for a sec. I, I think yeah. about it a lot as a, as a teacher mm. and the sort of where, what are the origins of our, of our ideologies and you know where teachers and education come into play. And I sometimes, and maybe I'm just over-policing over myself, but I sometimes find that I, I'm constrained in what I will say in my classes um, because I don't think, I don't think it's acceptable 
um, ideologically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, what for you, what you feel like, I mean, big question also, but what you feel like the constraints are as a professor, the ideological constraints, pressures, and also where you think these ideas come from. I mean, they, I obviously, as you, as you lay out, they come from a variety of places, including think tanks, but how do they become part of the discourse? Yes, well, I think I should probably take the second question first. So how, how do these ideas go from sort of think tanks to, to, to commonly held, or perhaps you might say hegemonic sort of beliefs? Um, and I think probably um, it's important not to be kind of too ideational about it. Um, a, a lot of these ideas, of course, are, have are rooted in material interests. And that a lot of people who, for example, fund think tanks um, and indeed support universities and institutes and so on, are, 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 are have have a sort of skin in the game, have a material stake in a set of economic policies which will benefit them. So I think what happens is um, you have a, a kind of a combination of um, ideologically motivated individuals working at various levels, universities, uh, think tanks, even in Congress. Um, but then you also have materially um, driven actors, big business uh, uh, and so on, that then uh, are only too happy to propel certain ideas and certain policies because they know that it's going to benefit them. So I think really there's this blend, right, of people who are, you know, true believers um, who would propose a given policy irrespective of whether they or, or their um, people in their network benefited from it. And then there are others um, who are operating, you know, more more cynically perhaps or, or just, just according to their interests. Um, and and are trying to promote these ideas. And I think one of the problems of the last 30 or 40 years is that the balance between the pa material power between, you know, to put it abstractly, capital and labour, shifted so far that the countervailing material pressure in the form of working class organisations like unions had really dwindled to such a low ebb that there wasn't much material resistance um but there was also i think an ideological capitulation which only served to make the the dominance of pro-market neoliberal ideas even greater so i think there's this material story and this ideological story and they're of course interlinked but i think we have to pay attention to both and the big story i think of the last 40 years is that the material side, you know, business essentially capital, um, uh, got the upper hand materially, um, and these pro-market ideas um, also got the upper hand ideologically. Um, I think the other point, the other question that you you raised there was about sort of the, the the ideological constraints or blinkers that we kind of put on ourselves as as teachers or or, or, or academics. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something that we have to really guard against. And in a way, we're we're in a very 
privileged position. And I would say that in my position as a tenured professor, I am especially privileged because I do have the freedom to uh, say things and promote ideas which are out of the mainstream, uh, if I think that's a good idea. Um, uh, and I would, you know, I'd hope that more of my colleagues felt felt the same. Um, it is true that we have, there are examples where you might think you might get blowback from that, um, either from institutions um, or from, you know, you, you know, if you get on Fox News, that's, you know, uh, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> um, uh, or, or um, you know, you might think that there's a kind of professional sort of sense in which, you know, you don't, you know, you're thinking about your own career and you don't necessarily want to sound too radical uh, mm -hmm. if you want to get promoted or get jobs <laughs> at fancy places. And I think that probably happens too. Um, uh, but I would say even even beyond that, just you want to be seen as a serious person. Yeah, that's right. And um, and sometimes being seen as a serious person is interpreted as saying things which policymakers are likely to agree with. But I think that if we start off like that, then when that works to the extent that the status quo is just and fair and what we want to protect. And if that's true, then we don't want to move away from the status quo. But to the extent that the status quo is not just and not fair, then we need to try and break out of, of the cycle, right? And that means we have to promote heterodox ideas rather than orthodox ideas. Um, and we need to be a little bit brave, but, you know, we are pretty privileged. And so it's not that brave to publish something which is a little bit out of the mainstream. Yeah. Um, it's really brave to go on strike, um, you know, when you fear you might be uh, uh, not, not, not able to pay your bills. Uh, so compared to, to people like that, um, I, you know, I, I don't think we need, um, you know, I, I think that there's, uh, we have, material resources on our side as as you know salaried employees often unionized employees those of us that are lucky enough to have tenure have all sorts of protections and so um i think in in a sense it's our obligation to 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 use that privilege to to push back um against um uh, ideas which we think are problematic um pushing back in a in a in a scholarly way um, uh, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't, especially in political science, we shouldn't be afraid to get involved in politics.